Welcome to the OC Endurance Podcast. My name is Chris, along with my hosts, Austin and Tony, and we've got a return guest. We've got John on uh, from John Yance from Area 3 Endurance. And this week we have Sebastian from Inside, and we're going to be talking all about uh, some testing we recently did. How are you guys doing? Very good to listen, man. Yeah, well, uh, I am actually running a couple minutes late this morning, unfortunately, because I was still sleeping because uh, Tony and I just arrived back from the 70.3 World Championships from Finland. So did you get any sleep, Tony? I got very little, but I set two alarms, so I wouldn't miss this. Uh, so I'm yeah, excited I, I did to, not set any alarms, so I heard your phone call coming in and I <laughs> started running. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you guys. Thank, uh, thank you, John and uh, Sebastian, for, for hopping on. Um, we did a little bit of testing before I went out uh, of town last week. So uh, why don't John or, or Sebastian, why don't you guys talk a little bit about the testing we did? Sebastian, why don't you start off by giving us a little background of yourself and credentials. I know all about you. I think that's a whole podcast to talk about all your accomplishments, but maybe just a quick summary. Yeah. So uh, thanks again for having me today. And um Chris, I'm totally with you about the sleep stuff. Huh? Do have a seven months old baby, so I can I can I can feel you. Huh? Um, about sleep duration here. <laughs> no, so uh, so yeah, so um, basically um, about myself. So you know, I have a, a background in terms of training from university and sports science, and a little bit of molecular human biology, and um, have been working in professional sports, primarily cycling, a little bit of triathlon as well. Um, I've been coaching some of the most successful um, road cyclists out there and maybe the most successful cycling team in history. And I stopped that um, some seven years back-ish, I guess, and concentrated on on building inside that software platform. It uses some of the methodologies really that we used in, in cycling in, in, this, in this decade before. Um, but we're not only into cycling, right? I mean, you guys are aware of it and, and use it in triathlon. Um, we do have uh, users in swimming, skiing, rowing, and all different kinds of endurance sports, right? And what we basically do is, um, like very simplified speaking, we kind of, you could say, look under the hood of an athlete. So really, that's where the, also the name insight comes from. Um, we really want to look into the athlete and you know find out on a physiological level, or let's say metabolic level, what's going inside the body, what's going inside the muscle to really understand what are the limiting factors um, that hold you back from improving performance, right? So not scratching on the surface and say, ah, this is a power number, for example, that you can put out on the bike, right? Um, Because that power number is basically telling you like in real time, you know, what you are training uh, or, you know, like how you're doing but it doesn't tell you what to do. So it doesn't disclose what you should be doing in order to increase that number. And that's basically where we come in. It's, yeah, so essentially you're just kind of, hey, here's here's where you can kind of maximize your potential. Is that kind of the, the way to look at it? Like kind of. I mean, in terms of like what you want to maximize, you need some context, right? So it depends on what you want to do. So we basically, so to speak, show you the numbers. Again, like, you know, let's say, um, the, the, the term looking under the hood maybe you know is, is maybe one of the better examples so it's like imagine you have a car and you buy a car and you don't know what's under the hood you don't know the horsebreak power you don't know the size of the engine you don't know whatsoever and then basically we come in and we ask you to drive this car some certain distances at some certain speeds and then we can kind of reverse engineer what's under the hood it's very similar actually like you think of 
uh, Formula One, for example. Formula One, they do the forward simulation, so to speak, the forward calculation. They know what's in the car, and then they can simulate what happens on, on race day on the track in terms of like a fueling strategy um, to fuel the, the, the tank here. And basically, we do the same like on human beings reverse engineer it. Um, so we do find out what's under the hood, and that is what we disclose. And then you as an athlete, together with your coach, you would need to look at it and say, okay, what do we want to work on here? And this is where the, where the magic kind of comes in, because basically it's a computer program, and what it allows you to do, it allows you to then manipulate any number that you think you might gain something from and see what the outcome would be. So basically, you know, let me give you one example. Chris said you know, he just ran... Um, like uh, you know, um, some 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 decent uh, competition here um, on uh, on the last weekend, and obviously, Chris, we would all agree that you know if you would be a little bit lighter, then it would pay off in the running, right? You would potentially run faster if you're lighter, right? Right. But that doesn't necessarily cut it, right? So if you say if I say to you, Chris, if you lose some weight, you run faster. That's not really, you know, putting stars in your eyes and you don't get very excited because that's like a very, you know, let's say lofty uh, statement, right? But if I could tell you, Chris, look, if you drop, let's say, I'm just making up these numbers, right? If you drop 10 kilograms of body weight, you run 10 seconds faster, would you go after it? No, yeah, certainly. Most, like, most likely not, no, right? Because 10 no, kilos uh, and 10, 10 seconds, seconds per, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 10 seconds and a half marathon, let's say, and 10 kilograms right. body weight, it's a pretty bad payoff. You would say, no, you know what, skip what, skip that. I, I yeah. want to have my barbecue, my beer, whatever. <laughs> it keeps you away from, from losing 10 kilograms, right? So the statement is still true, right? If you're lighter, you're faster, but you don't know how much lighter and how much faster. And this is where we come in. We can tell you exactly, Chris, if you lose 500 grams, you spare 10 minutes now we are talking right so and this is where this is where where we come in so we can disclose how much we can quantify basically how much faster you would be and then you can make an informed decision do i want to put myself on a diet or not right because that's some where i've struggled where i've been basically not weightlifting for a couple of years, trying to lose as much muscle mass, right? Because at some point I get down to like eight, 9% body fat. I'm trying to lose muscle mass at that side to try and get lighter and lighter and lighter. And are there diminishing returns at that point where if I'm losing muscle, am I going to get slower on the bike or less power? Well, temporarily for sure. If it's, if it's, you know, potentially paying off in the long term, it could well be, right? There are examples, I'm thinking back of my time in professional cycling, where we would actively try force athletes to lose muscle mass uh, just, just to make them lighter. And yeah, you get the temporary um, loss in power output and performance, but in the long run, it could, it could well, you know, play out to your advantage. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's kind of been where I've struggled. I've you know I've spent the last couple of years trying to lose muscle mass. Um, right, and so, and, and so I've weight, had a really you know, hard look, time. Like like the weight was just an example, right? We could talk about yeah, running no, economy no, I, or VO two max or whatever, <laughs> right? As I'm just saying this was just just was just. But we can yeah we we can dive into as I said like you know have Those your testing report now. from like eight days ago here in front of me. And, so when you uh, look under the hood per se, um, are you able to somewhat quantify? Um, 
you know, if you look over in the hood and say, okay, this is a V8, it's got this much, blah, blah, blah. You, you kind of have a, an idea of the capabilities of what this person will be able to achieve, right? Almost to the limits of what they'll be able to achieve. Um, um, I wouldn't necessarily say that because without the context, what you have been doing to get to those numbers, it's, it's hard to tell like what would be the hard limit, right? Right. Oh, based so, on the training, right? If you yeah, haven't you, been you training, need, you need some optimally. context from like training and maybe a little bit of nutrition, depending on what you talk about, to understand right. where might be the limit. Because, for example, take VO2max, right? Many people out there think VO2max is not trainable. That's basically totally untrue, right? That's one of the most trainable endurance markers out there. Um, and so you can definitely, for example, change your VO2max, like you can change your body weight, right? By just eating a lot or just stop eating. It's a very simple experiment here. Um, you, so you can change your VO to max by training, but it's not that easy to tell you and we can't tell you how much you could potentially train it, right? But when you, but this is where, this is where now the work comes in. If you do this test more often, let's say you do the test two or three times and you put the test results and the development, for example, in VO to max next to what you didn't do in training, then you can start to understand like how much did I train and what did I train that brought me to a higher or lower number or sustained that number. And this is why it's so important, right? Because basically this is what you should do. You should do like or what also like elite athletes are doing. You do a certain kind of training and you you check before and after if it brought you the results that you're trying to achieve. It's very simple. Right? I mean, if, if you, let's think about it. If you would, like you said, right, you would put yourself on a diet, you would try to lose muscle, right? You would stop going to the gym or whatever. How would that feel doing that? Just imagine you do this, let's say, for two months. You try to lose muscle by changing diet, changing exercise. And how would that feel if I would take away your, your scale and you can't measure your body weight and or your body composition? It's flying blind, right? You would not do that. So you should ask yeah, yourself, exactly. then, why do we do that when it comes to, for example, improving our VO2 max? Like how can we prescribe training intense like training prescriptions like VO2 max interval without knowing this number and checking it before and afterwards? Yeah, it's interesting because John had shared, which we'll get into, but just shared some pieces of what um the results show you and how you can apply those, just things to like how you're applying um the recovery, you know, when you're spinning during recovery and how much wattage you should be putting out to so all of those things, which yeah, without this testing, you really would have no idea. Um Sebastian, let's, um, I want to sidestep really quick and come back to this because I think we're going to start talking about VO2 max, VOA max, everything that inside uh, lets us look under the hood. But just for most of our listeners, how about we do a quick comparison of different kinds of testing, why inside is different from your FTP test, which is commonly known. I think it's a buzzword used amongst a lot of triathletes. Oh, what's your FTP? Oh, my FTP is 300. My FTP is 290 or whatnot. And um, maybe, yeah, comparing inside FTP and maybe your metabolic cart and you know what's the difference and what's uh, more beneficial as far as the data spits out well I mean so your FTP is just one benchmark so I'm not I mean even not like if you don't dive into the accuracy and definition like what is it now 60 minute power 20 minutes power minus x like let alone this just say if we somehow magically agreed on what it actually is uh, then we should ask ourselves, like, how important is it? Like, like Chris, in your last in your last race, like, did you race at FTP at any time of the race? Did you try to do that? 
like you know uh very, not at at yeah. ftp no at right. a percentage of right we picked yeah. a number and and kind right. of and yeah, stuck you, with yeah, that. yeah yeah you, you so you have a percentage of that or something or if you think about like fueling strategies right so limiting factor in, in endurance events obviously is like the precious uh, you know glycogen in the muscle and how much carbohydrate you how carbohydrates you, you can fuel right this is why you eat carbohydrates you have bottles on your bike and you try the jails and bars um there's nothing that it relates to FTP here in terms of the substrate utilization. So how much carbohydrate you need. So when you, you know, when you want to increase your fat combustion, FTP tells you nothing about that. Now, metabolic card can tell you some of these things, right? So metabolic card, if you have VO2 and VCO2 and VCO2 measurements, that's a classical way to get a handle on um, understanding your substrate utilization of fat and carbohydrates. So you put somebody on a treadmill on a bike, you know, hook them up with a metabolic card. And then um, kind of, you know, try to stay at a steady intensity, so running pace or, or power output and measure those gas exchange numbers and uh, from that derive what the fat and carbohydrate combustion approximately is. There are some downsides to it because, you know, actual nutrition can if, or affect that heavily. Um, so you have a very fair chance that you, you know, just measure what's going on on that day. And I don't want to, bash about it it's a it's a great machine i have one sitting here i've owned several of those in my in my career i just want to create this awareness that if you do if you, if you hook yourself up to a metabolic card and you for example you want to me measure your fat combustion and you do it today and tomorrow and today before the test you eat a sausage and tomorrow before the test you drink a glass of orange juice the data will come out entirely different i mean entirely like 50 percent difference easily so that's that's wow. kind of the downside because they are very, you know, sensitive to like the test is very sensitive. You can do washouts and you, and most people I know who do it do standardized nutrition to get somewhat comparable numbers. But then you need to ask yourself how comparable that is to what you see outside in day to day training, right? Because day to day training doesn't have standardized nutrition. Um, and then for us from, from inside, we kind of, yeah, we also have substrate utilization that. The, te the technique, how we do it, is different from a metabolic card. And therefore, it is just picking that, for example, a substrate utilization. Therefore, um, the numbers that you get show you how your body uses fat and carbohydrates in general. And therefore, it's unable to uh, show you, for example, how it changes when you just say eat a lot of fat and protein or just drink uh, sugar. Right. If you do it for several days before the test, this will reflect in your inside test results. But it doesn't have this sensitivity to show you the nutrition of the actual day. So that's the downside. The upside for it, it's more, it's it's more relevant for your daily training and racing, right? Because it shows you in general how you function, independent of what you had for breakfast this morning. So that's 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 a big power of it. Um, and then besides that. Talking comparison, like John asked, comparison these things in general. I think there's two main advantages um, from. I mean, of course, I'm biased here, right? <laughs> but um, there's two main advantages. You're um, doing an inside test over just doing a metabolic car test, and the first and most obvious thing that people see and people think of is the wealth of data. Like you mentioned, Chris, right? You see um, not only fat and carb combustion, you see also 
what intensity you choose you should choose for intervals, but not only for the on phase, but for the recovery phase. And you can you can understand how long the recovery should be and at what power output for a specific training targets. So you have a wealth of information, which you don't get, of course, not with an FDP test, but also not just with a metabolic heart test. Um, basically, to put this in perspective, to get the same amount of data you get from inside tests, you would spend at least one full day in the laboratory doing all kinds of like anaerobic tests, aerobic tests, and all kinds of different tests. However, for me personally, on the surface, yeah, you have this more data, but um, for me personally, I see one of the bigger benefits is what we touched on a little bit is that you're able now to quantify the effect of one single metric, right? So I take I pick up your example with changing muscle mass. If you change muscle mass and inside, um, yeah, of course you get lighter, but the effect trickles down, right? Um, for example, if you have less, less muscle mass, you have less, less to carry around, but you also have then... Uh, for example, less, and now it gets a little bit complex, maybe a little, you have less tissue where lactate can distribute, just to pick up a little bit exotic things. And this is all mechanistically interlinked or interconnected with an inside. So when you change one thing, it shows you what changes, like all the trickle-down effects. And this for me is the most powerful, actually, because what we you know picked up a little bit here already is that you can really change one metric, VO2max, running economy, body composition, VLMX, pick whatever you want, right? You can pick one and see the effect on whatever you're interested in, in your FTP number, in your recovery times, in your substrate utilization, your fat max, right? And this is for me more powerful to have this mechanistic relationship, which allows you to understand what I should be training on. Um, that's not what people see on the surface. The people see on the surface only all they have this values of metrics. Yep, uh, Sebastian, hundred percent agree with that. Just to touch on, you're talking about you know VO2 max, you know what you got to change in the training, and if you kind of briefly go over, just going back to FTP, FTP is trying to determine what, and you know, it's one dimensional. Unlike inside, it's three dimensional. We know what training knobs to turn. FTP, I think you just get your guesstimate of your anaerobic threshold, and it's it's good. It's good enough. I use it as well. I think a lot of athletes go into the 20 minute test. I don't want to say wrong, but, um, you know, they're either recovered going into it, strong aerobic right. animal yeah, yeah. might be, you know, resting and then, you know, strong 20 minute power output. I mean, I was the same way when I started triathlon 20 or 10 plus years ago was, you know, I did the FTP test 20 minute. I could, I came from basketball and soccer. I could put out a strong anaerobic power, but right. what happened with that is all my training zones were inflated. Yeah. So my zone five, zone six, I was nailing that 300, 400 watts, one minute, two minute, no problem. Once you have me do a, you know, medio sweet spot, tempo-ish, you know, which ideally I should be holding for a 70.3 race, I was yeah. struggling just 15, 20 minutes into it because now I'm tr always training in that gray line. So my easy was never easy. My zone two was actually zone three and my zone three is probably zone four. So right. I think inside really lets us know, okay, what is your true anaerobic threshold and why? FTP, once I said it's one-dimensional, so maybe you could dig a little deeper into that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so it's, for sure it's a one-dimensional problem. And then the other problem is um, that, um, you know, it's a, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty rough number, right? I mean, this is where the name FTP comes from, right? So, sorry, but some, some, some sports science background. So it's a really, really super old, like half, like what is that, like uh, several decades 
uh, concept, actually, right? Because think about it this way. Originally, like in the 70s and 80s, so like more than 50 years ago, um, people were trying to get a handle on this uh, maximum lactate steady state. So you're kind of point where you can sustain an exercise intensity without accumulating lactate and without running into, you know, fast exhaustion and fatigue. And it was intensive lab testing. And then there were all kinds of methods. Some of you might have heard of Conconi method and heart rate deflection point, all kinds of method to trying to simplify it, right? And the most simple thing to get there would be to do some kind of incremental step-like test and taking lactate samples. This was, especially in Europe, it's much, much more popular than lactate testing is in the US. So there's some, some history over there. Um, and so then power meters arrived, right? And uh, especially with like uh, power meters being all over the place, there was something like, okay, can we do something or, you know, we want to do something with this, with this power number. So where I'm trying to go here is that the lactate profile test that some of you might heard was actually there as a proxy to get somewhat of an understanding of your, you know, maximum lactate steady state or, you know, um, whatever you want to call this, so sustainable endurance intensity, to use that then to define training intensities, right? You take a percentage of your maximum lactate steady state, 70% is base training and 120% is your 2 max training, I don't know, whatsoever. So lactate testing was a proxy of that. And then FDP basically became the proxy of that. So you're talking about a proxy about a proxy. So it's pretty rough, right? It doesn't take into account any physiological metric, right? It's pure mechanical, right? It's just power. It's just, it's just measured power. Um, there's no physiology in here whatsoever, right? So it's not asking how this power is produced, like John, like you say, more anaerobically, more aerobically, right? It doesn't tell you anything about what's going on, for example, at 70% of that number. Do you burn more fat? Do you burn more carbohydrates? This, all, all of this is totally uh, you know, unknown, so to speak. And why I come up with this history, <laughs> because in the 80s, it become more and more popular to do training those as a percentage of your lactate steady state or lactate values or whatsoever, right? And or in the 80s, it was understood that this is not necessarily the best way how you should be training, that it's a very simplified way. And there's many studies showing that you don't improve your performance and because you create many blind spots, you don't really know what's going on. And this is what some that what I find personally um, I wouldn't say hilarious, but like it's it is remarkable that you know FDP was maybe born I don't know twenty years ago or something more or less when it gets popular, and it tries to copy a concept of training zones and 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 marking endurance performance that was already getting outdated ten twenty years before. So um, it's not really the smartest concept whatsoever, so to speak, to say the least. I guess it's just easily reachable for anybody who's using uh, Zwift or any any application, right? So that's probably helped the popularity and, as well. And, don't, and Chris, don't get don't get me wrong here, right? If you would ask me, should I train with no guidance or should I take twenty percent or seventy percent or whatever percentage of my FTP value? I would vote for the FTP value. Don't right. don't, don't using get something. Me, you don't don't <laughs> get me wrong. Like if you ask me, should I do nothing or should I take? Uh, my 220 minus my age as maximum heart rate and take a percent of that, I go for that, right? But right. this is what right. it is, right? This is exactly what FDP is in terms of like your sophistication here. So 
if you're just starting and you're just whatever, go out there three times a week and, you know, just enjoy the run um, and, you know, don't really, let's put it this way, if you don't really care so much about improving your form, performance, then cool, stay with your FTP test. But if you are out there to, um, you know, improve your performance and you want to spend your time as wise as possible, then I would not go with FTP. And we can go back to the example of what we just said, right? You like, the, Would you do a diet without using a scale controlling your progress? Then you should ask yourself, should I do VO2max interval without controlling my progress? Should I do FATMAX training without controlling my progress, right? And um, you should also maybe ask your questions and um, the time you invest into that. And if you invest, as I said, like three times per week, 30 minutes, because you enjoy being outside and exercising, it's one thing. But if you're investing, I don't know, six, eight, 10, 12, 14 hours per week in your sport, net training time, plus whatever goes there for commuting to the gym or to the pool or whatsoever, you should ask yourself and compare that how much you earn in your job, for example, per hour and put maybe a price tag on it and ask yourself if it's, it's, if it's time and money well spent. And then, yeah, and then, don't get me wrong, it's not necessarily about insight, right? You can also take a view to make the REM test at the laboratory. I'm just saying, like, you should maybe not try to run after an improvement in a metric that you didn't measure going in and going out. Yeah. No, that makes total sense. Uh, I have a question, John. I don't know if there's another direction you want to go, but we talked a little bit about... Um, you know, carbohydrates versus fat, things like that. When I did uh, my VO2, and I did VO2 using a treadmill, and um, I did a resting metabolic, and, you know, you're not supposed to have caffeine before because right. those types of things can affect it, yeah. just like you were speaking to. One of the things I was curious about, because it's come up even on our podcast before when we've talked about training, is, um, you know, fat adapted, right? And you're talking about carbohydrates and how much carbohydrates you're using versus um, potentially I hear athletes talking about, yeah, I train in the morning, um, you know, fasted, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm getting fat adapted. Does that come into some of the data that you can see as to um, performance or you should be consuming more carbohydrates or how that, you know, any modifications you might make to your your diet based on what you were seeing in the in the test results? Yeah, so you definitely see that in test results. We had this uh, several times, especially with like the World Tour teams we are working with, somebody who's on a fat-adapted diet, or um, and you definitely see that in the numbers. Uh, you definitely see that in the results. Yes. Yeah, because nowadays you've got certain athletes that they may be paleo, right? You know, there's some trail runners that are yep. big time, um, you know, paleo, and they're they're pushing that a lot. Versus others that are, you know, very very heavy carbohydrate diet. Right. And I would assume that potential. I mean, I wouldn't think one would work with all athletes, right? Maybe someone might perform better fat adapted than another. Or are, do you see trends that you know, if you were more um, say paleo-ish, right? Very fat adaptive, high fat protein diet versus carbohydrate that you see better performance versus another? Um, well, in general, Chris, my take on that is that, like you said, I think one of the most important sentences you said about it was a side note that you see it works for some athletes and doesn't work for other athletes. And that's also what I've seen, for example, within professional cyclists and um, what, what I see with other non-professionals also of other sports like triathlon. And 
you can link it back um, very nicely to their unique physiology. So, and 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 the training that you're doing. Um, so, um, when you are fat adapted, and so basically, I mean, the main the main important piece to look at here is how much glycogen or how, how much how much how much carbohydrates you take in, right? Like either you do it with a paleo diet or whatever your diet is. Um, so when you have this carbohydrate restrictions, and let's put it this way, you are a guy with a VLMX of 0.3, you have a tremendous amount of fat combustion, you train, I'm just like painting a little bit black and white here to understand, you know, to make it clear where I'm going. Um, you, so you have, you have a very low VLMX, you have a high VO2 max, you have a super good fat max, and you train whatever, 18 hours per week, and that training is primarily... One part of it, because it's 18 hours per week, um, it's primarily low intensity, fat max, long, slow distance stuff. Then, hey, you know, your um, low carbohydrate intake diet, whatever it looks like, will be very well suited and can give you some performance benefits. Um, and then... And that what I've seen in the past, somebody sees that, for example, with professionals and tries to mimic it. Um, and uh, this guy maybe has, you know, a VLMX of 0.6, burning a lot of carbohydrates, has a low fat max. Um, is time restricted because I guess what people have a job in real life. Um, trains six or eight hours per week, and because he's not training that much, this guy is able to, you know, do what he calls VO2max or threshold intervals three, four times a week and across the different disciplines. And for that guy, because his training is depending so highly on carbohydrates, this then coupled with the lower VO2 max, it's not working. He's not progressing or is even decreasing his performance. And this is what we've seen in professional cyclists. When you do, when you do put, um, you know, sprinting, sprinter athletes, uh, road sprinters on, on such a diet, um, if you do it in altitude training where you have higher carbohydrate combustion. So it depends on, depends highly on the physiology here. But you're able to see that in the report and then help guide possibly an athlete to diet modifications or recommendations? Uh, yes, so you would you would definitely, because yeah, so, so, so the report gives you uh, fat and carbohydrate combustion as a function, so related to speed or power output and running or, or, or cycling, right? So you can see directly at which power output on the bike or which running speed you burn how much. And so you can make an informed decision on how you should be fueling, or you can do the math and say, okay, if I do this kind of interval training, then it's not really wise to have like you know um, a, a, a meat-based diet in that day, and then go out the next hard, go out hard again the next day because I need to re I need to refuel. Um, you could also look from it the other way around, um, and would say, okay, but this is my diet, so my diet is a fixed one, and I need to adapt to my training intensity. But in real life, that's not happening, right? I mean, nobody goes out there pedaling 80 watts on a bike, this, you know, just because they don't want to eat carbohydrates. I mean, that's realistically not happening, right? <laughs> so realistically, uh, you would adapt the diet, right? And that makes sense because training comes first, right? There's a bigger effect of your performance from training. Right. Otherwise, we would not talk about training interventions, but more about nutrition interventions. But the main effect comes from training. So training has a higher priority. So if, for example, you and your coach decide that this kind of interval training, whatever it is, is the way to go, then you should fuel yourself to be able to do this interval training. Right. And if this means we can eat only meat and cheese, fine. If this means you need to eat a lot of, 
you know, whole grains and pasta, then that's to go. And then you can, and this is where the term paradise nutrition comes from, and then you can alternate it, right? So you can make it smart. And on the days where you, you know, go lower intensity, you burn less carbohydrates, you can change your diet to more like a fat adapted. Uh, and then in times when you have higher intensity, let it be the day or several weeks of training, you need to adapt again. And this is where testing your substrate utilization comes in again, uh, because now you have this information and you know exactly how much carbohydrates you need um, and which intensity you need to choose to burn the most about a fat. So yeah, information is powerful here. I think that's similar. You're talking about, you know, carb timing and everything. You see Austin shaking his head. I haven't seen his biceps, but I heard he had pretty big biceps. And, you know, you can't tell from me now, but I used to lift, live in the gym, hitting weights and, you know, weightlifters carb cycle. Yeah. Depending yeah. on, you know, what yeah. intensity, what they're going to be doing for that yes. day, the next day, yes. or for that week. Kind of yes. So, that's become very morning. popular across sports. Yeah. Should we speak to what the testing is at all? as far as what it entails a little bit, right? I mean, I did it, so I kind of have an idea now, but I really had no idea what this entailed other than seeing uh, YouTube videos from guys like Christian and, and Lionel, right? They're, they're working really hard, and then they're taking samples from their ear, and they're getting a number, and they're, they're changing the way they're working out based on, on that. I mean, what, is, what exactly does the testing involve for both... Um, I mean, I guess you could do it on pretty much all three sports, really. But, I mean, yeah, we did it yeah. for cycling, right? Um, yeah. So, I guess maybe talk through what that involves. Exactly. Yeah. So, you can, like, yes, as I mentioned earlier, we, we work in all kinds of endurance sports. You can do it. Uh, you can even do it on trail runs. Uh, you can do it. Uh, we have cross-country skiing, rowing, like, you name it, right? We even have, um, like, um, you know, um, hand cyclists or Paralympic guys So what whatever um the standard like in terms of triathlon obviously you're doing it on the bike on the run and or in the water um obviously swimming maybe being the less the least popular here because of the logistic that it brings with it uh, to do the test um and then i would say we are somewhat agnostic to the testing protocol and also to the devices used so we don't really care which kind of lactate meter you use um and there's a great flexibility in the testing protocols. In general, um, there's two, let's say, gatekeepers, and we call them a lactate test or a PPD test, being the abbreviation for power performance decoder. So lactate test is everything that's related to lactate-based only, and it allows you for great flexibility in the protocol. It's mostly sub-maximum, it's only one maximum effort, um, and this is a lot what the elites are using, professionals are using. Um, and again, the beauty of it is also that the protocol from the test and retest scenario may change. So the software doesn't care if whatever, you know, you're using five minute steps and next time you're using seven minute steps or random step duration, it's all possible. The power performance decoder can also take lactate samples and it can also take lab data, like what like you said from a metabolic card. But the more, let's say, popular widespread usage is to combine it with a series of all-out efforts, um, running or cycling. And that would mean that there's always a sprint involved that should be approximately 20 seconds, can be a little bit shorter, can be a little bit longer, should come from rest. So you have to rest before uh, in order to achieve good accuracy. Then it should be an all-out effort somewhere in the range of three minutes. It can be a little bit shorter, a little bit longer, but somewhere in this ballpark. And then two longer efforts, which you can choose 
eight minutes, 15 minutes, six minutes, 12 minutes, whatsoever. You can substitute those by just typing in um, your approximate FTP value. You have that from any third party software, right now, Golden Cheetah, WKO, today's plan, whatever you have the number form, you can put this in and save some testing time. Um, and so this is pretty much the protocol is right now. Um, we very likely are going to adapt it and make it even easier and even more adaptable next year, but currently this is what it looks like. So it is somewhat thing. demanding, right? Because it's mostly like if you use it this way without lactate, it's mostly all out efforts. Sebastian, with that 20 second sprint, just because I get that question a lot, can you explain why we're not pedaling for 100 seconds? <laughs> yeah, um, because I'm very picky when it comes to accuracy. That is, uh, that's, <laughs> that's, I need to apologize. Now, I need to apologize. Uh, there's an over, there's a hidden override function where you can, where you can get away without that resting. But so, in our so with us, everything we put out there, every functionality, every test, every feature, uh, either has an external or an internal uh, verification process. So if we either run our own data to make sure that what it calculates is 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 correct and within the the, the industry norm of accuracy, um, and otherwise not getting released. And so if you do the sprint test from a rest period, this is how it was designed to work, and then you get a little bit better accuracy. And yeah, it might sound stupid, but we're talking like 2 or 3% for the VLA max number. Um, physiologically speaking, what you're doing is you're bringing your VO2 down and you're creating phosphate up in the muscle. So without, I don't know how, how deep you want to dive here, but you bring yourself back to rest. And um, that's approximately 90 seconds to two minutes um, that it takes to get like VO2, so action uptake, pretty close to resting values, and you're creating phosphate in the muscle pretty close to fully replenished values. And with that, you you minimize the effect of aerobic energy contribution doing that sprint test. And it might sound a little bit crazy, say, a 20-second sprint, of course it's anaerobic, but no, think about it this way. Think about it this way, John, you're riding along at 300 watts. Right, as 300 watts steady state will will basically elicit um, an oxygen uptake of approximately four liters of oxygen. So to put this in perspective, if if you are, you know, um, if you are 70 kilograms uh, of body weight, then this is all, almost already a VO2, a VO2 of 60. Right, so you have a really really elevated oxygen uptake. So there's a lot of energy uh, energy production happening in the muscle. Right, 300 watts. Um, yeah, to, to produce your energy for that 300 watts. And just because now you start to sprint, that's not going away. So whatever sprint power you measure has minimum 300 watts aerobic energy contribution to it. And so it's not a clean anaerobic sprint. And again, being really picky when it comes to accuracy, we want a 20 seconds anaerobic sprint. And therefore you need to first, you know, "Quote unquote," shut down your aerobic system as much as possible, and that is resting. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It, it it makes it difficult for gearing. I will say that gearing on the bike. I did it. I did it twice because I think the first time I ended up um, spinning out by the time I got up to the you know like eight or ten seconds into when we, when we did it on the bike, trying to figure out 
how much gear you should have, like what gears you should be in, what resistance you should have. Yeah, we normally, um, I mean, I mean, so the beauty of it, like when I started, like, you know, when I developed the first test for VLMX back in 2002, 2003, you were dependent on the gearing. But I mean, obviously, you know, we developed. So the gearing itself is like, doesn't really matter. But of course, you should be able to have, like, so the pacing also, like how the power output looks like during this 20 second sprint doesn't really matter. Um, but of course, you should not be running out of gears and therefore not being able to hold the power. What we generally recommend is to do like a little test run. So like say like, you know, whatever. And the week before you're planning to do the test, like, you know, try it out. Like, you know, go to the road where you most likely would do it. I mean, if you do it indoors and it's it's even simpler and do whatever, just, just do the first 10 seconds or 12 seconds or do the full sprint, whatever you like. Right, and just get familiar with that. It depends very much on the sport, Chris, to be honest. If you talk to a cyclist and they do sprint exercise regularly, they don't care. They know. They know what gears, they know how it feels. Um, right. And then, yeah, if you bring it up to an Ironman triathlete, they never sprint. So for them, it's entirely new. So it depends a little bit on <laughs> you know, who, you, who you're testing. Yeah, triathletes, we're not sprinters. So no, and that's totally that fine. Like right? say, I, I always have athletes you know, test it out before leading up to the, the yeah. testing. Day. Exactly, sure. which yeah. is what I did, but I obviously I didn't I I felt like I didn't quite do it right. So it was it is good to like John said, try it out a couple times. Try before it out you a jump bit, on yeah. and, do and you it. don't have to do the full twenty seconds and just first ten to twelve or something. Yeah, and then it's pretty straightforward actually. Again, like if you undergear overgear a little bit, like if it takes for you a, a, lo a, a awful lot of time to accelerate because yeah because you're not that sprinter guy, that's totally fine. That's totally fine. It will not affect the results. All right, Sebastian, you know, I, I know the answer to these questions, but I'm asking it just for our audience. But so what's the three-minute, six-minute, and the 12-minute trying to determine? Um, with Chris, I did the three-minute, and then yeah. I took lactate after that. So if you could maybe go yeah, that. Yeah, I've seen quick. that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so um, either, like, this or without lactate, the idea behind the three-minute is, is basically the same. Um it is approximately three minutes, right? So there's some flexibility. But let's, let's just, for the sake of simplicity, call it a three-minute effort. Um, that's the idea to, um, to do an effort which is long but still intense enough to, for sure, elicit your VO2 max. So even though you don't measure it with a, hooked up to a metabolic card, you want to elicit uh, VO2 max in, 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 in one of the efforts and really reach your, reach your VO2 max, right? Um, and so this is one important data point uh, that we have, one, one very important data point. And then the other efforts, the longer ones, like you said, I think six and six and twelve minutes, um, are then used in combination to this is three minute one to understand the maximum metabolic steady state of the athlete or um, like the proxy for critical power. And um, theoretically, um, theoretically. Um, the test would work just with the 20-second sprint and the three minutes. If you go back to my history, like I had my own lab in Germany and how we tested professionals and how we tested, um, yeah, professional virtual teams and how I tested guys like Tony Martin or professional triathletes, like, um, then we would just do a sprint test and REM test and measure VO2max directly and take the lactate in the sprint test and therefore have VO2max and VLA-max. Um, so that... If you have it this way, if you're hooked up in a lab, then that's accurate enough. Um, but because, and that's no offense to an athlete, but because we put it out for field testing, right? And you have different conditions out there. You maybe have, yeah, to be honest, 
you know, in a running test, some inaccuracies in your de GPS device, you have inaccuracies in the power meters on the bike, and that's nothing we can control, right? There's nothing we can control. We don't control if you have an SRM power meter, if you do it on an ergometer, if you do it, I know what kind of power meter and whatever, only a single lag and maybe crashed it the week before. And it's inaccurate. So we don't know that. What we know is if the numbers don't come out, come out correct, it's always us, right? So what we're trying to do here is we are adding those data, um, like the six minutes and 12 minutes into the mix. And then from a little bit me nerdy point of view, what happens is that we cross-validate. So there's a self, mathematically speaking, there's a self-audit built into the system. So as I said, theoretically, we could just take the sprint and the three minutes and do everything that we do. But then we take the six and the 12 minutes, so to speak, as a reassurance to double check what the, what the other test spits out and fine-tune the results and therefore ensure that, you know, it's hard to get the results which are off and we fine-tune and get more accurate results um, from those other two tests. So yeah, so you have, basically you could say you have uh, three data points, like the, the longer ones being one data point, the three minute one and the 20 second one, and two always are used to control the third one. And then we cross check, so to speak, and self audit what's going on. It's a quality measure. Yeah, that and that's the exact question I asked John as to, you know, we only did lactate on one test how did the other numbers apply and, and get used? And he was talking about essentially what yeah, you talked about. Um, you marry those numbers to, to verify. Well, I could, if you I mean, we can dive a little bit deeper why you took the lactate here, um, if you want. Um, because, so basically, the beauty of taking the lactate is that it makes this three-minute test to measure VO to max uh, a little bit more accurate. And technically, it makes it more independent of the sprint test. So if you don't do the lactate, then, the, then there's a dependency of the results of the three-minute test from the sprint test, right? Because think about it this way. Um, you do a three-minute all-out, and yeah, you're reaching VO2max. But the power output is not equal to your VO2max because there's anaerobic metabolism involved, right? I mean, undeniable, it was hard, right? You felt it. Right. In your case, Chris, lactate, if I may share that, went up to 12.6 millimoles. So undeniable, there was some anaerobic metabolism going on. So whatever power you had was obviously not purely derived from your VO2max. So you can just not go, like, sorry for the little sidekick here, other software, other people trying to do it, and take your maximum average power and use it one-to-one -one as a proxy for your VO2max. It is just wrong because obviously there's anaerobic energy metabolism involved. And we need to understand how much. And there's two ways to do that. We either use your VLMX from the sprint test to understand how much is involved, or you measure the lactate. And so in terms of accuracy, there's not a big difference, but the beauty of taking the lactate is we, we take a dependency out of it, right? So you can basically say, what I'm saying is you can mess up your sprint test. Like you say, I used the undergeared one. It's entirely messed up. My average power is, I don't know, 350 watts in the sprint test. Um, you messed it up and still would get a, a, a rock solid VO2 max, even though you messed up your sprint test. And this is the beauty of adding the lactate. So it's not a necessity, right? It's like a security net adding a little bit of accuracy and ensuring that, um, especially on the bike, I have to say, 
these days there are some power meters and you can see that in some reports which are not calibrated at sprint power outputs. A lot of power meters out there get calibrated only for endurance kind of efforts because this is the majority what you use them for. So, for example, if you have a power meter which is not super accurate and it messes up a little bit your VLMX and the sprint, it doesn't affect the VO2max calculation if you take the lactate. So, I don't know if that's going too much in the details, but that's basically the beauty of adding the lactate. Yeah, so ultimately it all plays into the accuracy. How much yes. more accurate can yeah. you ensure? As I said, I'm a little you, bit... <laughs> addicted to that <laughs> no it's good though because right you're not locked in a in a lab right you're not controlling the weather conditions the humidity yeah. conditions There's everything around you right and all of those things i would assume potentially could affect things uh, yeah and, 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 and i mean it reflects it you know it reflects the um it reflects the actual condition right so it reflects your capabilities on that day huh um which is, by the way, if 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 I if I if I may share that anecdote, which is something that came out initially when we started 2017 and 2018, the early years, that came out a little bit surprising in professional cycling that we've seen tremendously high VO2max values, often higher than you would see in a lab test, and then you can take like mobile VO2 analyzers out and confirm that. Um, but it was somewhat interesting that in general you go always like, oh yeah, the number is like. Uh, you know, most of the numbers look pretty high. Um, but then if you look into science, it tells you that indoor cycling, um, yeah, the power output is lower and the, all the numbers are lower. Um, and um, the VO2max values that we get from out, out, outdoor testing, like, you know, lactate testing, you know, teams are using inside to test outdoors on a climb or something, are more realistically because it is outside on your own bike, right? So it reflects reality. And if you do the nerdy stuff and then look at the power output in the race, you will often find that if you just use your lab results, it's impossible to physiologically explain the power output that you see, for example, in the Tour de France or something. But if you test outdoors in real life conditions, it makes sense. So this is the strength hmm. from That's doing really interesting. it. That's the strength from testing in real life. It's something that we also advise, right? So for example, now if winter time is coming and for example, you spend most of your time riding your bike on indoor trainer on some, you know, Zwift or MyVoosh or some, some indoor cycling platform, we advise, you know, if you want, if you want the most accurate uh, training zones and training recommendations for those environments and test in this environment. And when spring is coming, you ride more outdoors, you should do it properly outdoors, right? Or road bike versus TT bike or whatever your condition is. Right. For example, when yeah. I coached the time trialist Tony Martin, I always tested him on the TT bike because, like you know, if he's building up for World Time Time Championships, why should I test him on a road bike on a climb? No, we were testing on the TT bike on the flat in his conditions. Yeah, that that reminded me of a question I was going to ask you. Uh, how often, say, someone like myself, right? Um, I'm just starting with this data and learning it. And um, in my case, I'm coming back from a period where I wasn't training as much, right? Because I had surgery in March, and I'm trying to ramp back up. How often um, should an athlete be testing to see if what they're doing is improving? Like, what what is a good time interval? Yeah, so the general quick answer would be approximately four times a year, in some cases three, three to four times a year. Um, but it depends a little bit on what you are what you're trying to do, right? So, for example, um, 
you know, basically we talked about initially when we started today is that you normally would pick one or two metrics which you're trying to focus on, right? So in your case, Chris, for example, I would focus primarily now on improving view to max, which makes sense. You said you just picked up training, right? And now you can see measurable significant improvements in view to max within approximately six weeks of first reactions after changing your training program, you see for sure. When the training, if the training works, you see for sure reactions after six weeks, and you see a, a good adaptation to the training that you're doing after approximately ten weeks. So, if this is your aim, right? If this is what you're trying to do, then of course it would make sense like to test approximately two to three months after you change your training program. Um, and if you target something else, you target VLMX, for example, it can take longer, and therefore you maybe don't test that often, or you maybe do an initial test to see if you're going into the right direction and what you're doing training actually works, and then you have a longer gap. So you could you could you know do it a little bit smart depending on what you're aiming for, but you will always end up approximately four times a year. Um, and if I may add that we we um, because we had people who wanted to test more in specific time periods, for example, uh, and we have an increasing number of triathletes on the platform and triathlon coaches, we changed our business model so you can now basically um, subscribe um, based on um, you know a number of athletes. So um, yeah, before you would basically buy tests from us, right? Um, and and now you basically can have um, a subscription. As you know from like Training Peaks or the Days Plan or something where you pay per athlete per month. And then it's like a flat rate. So as a triathlete, you could test as much as you want, as often as you want in all disciplines. There's no extra cost. And that serves that possibility, right? Um, especially in triathlon, to test more often if you want to. So if you, Chris, if you want to do for all our tests every week, you could do that. <laughs> I don't know that I want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Four times a year is probably enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah, without going too much into the into the uh, um, into the rabbit hole here, but you, you can you know play around with it. For example, you can you know um, just you could just use you could just redo a twenty second test and upload into the system and see how it compares to your previous test to see if you're on the right track. Like if, for oh, example, ch yeah. changing your VLMX. That's something, so elite teams are doing a lot. They do a, like a complete setup in terms of testing. And then after a few weeks, for example, you just take one lactate sample and any kind of training condition, put it into the system, combine and compare it. You know, does this lactate sample match my, my physiological profile? And if not, then something is going on, something changed. So that's an indicator of I'm, if I'm on the right track. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I know we have a little bit of a limited time, but before um, we talk about test results, I wanted to talk about how would people, if people are interested in this, obviously John offers this, um, but we have people around, you know, around the world that are listening. Um, is the best way to to find a coach that does this? Um, can they go to your website and then you can point them in the direction of someone in their area that does the test? How would someone go about finding out um, where they could get testing done? Yeah, so we do have on our website, we do have a section on the top uh, for athletes and there is like a world map where you can find coaches um, who, who offer 
inside testing or have uh, incorporated the test results into the training philosophy and, and race preparation, like fueling strategies and pacing strategies and stuff. Um, if you want to test remotely uh, because you find nobody close by, yeah, you can just, for example, also work with John because, as I said, the Power Performance Decoder offers you to, um, you know, uh, to do the testing by yourself on the bikes, you don't have to take lactate samples. You have to, don't have to be on site. Um, so um, yeah, if you if you're in the triathlon uh, sports, then uh, this might be um, you know a good opportunity um, to reach out. And um, also, let me put it this way: for some people, it is just getting the test results maybe with some advice to inform them where they should be going. And for other people, it might end up more in like a real, like, uh, you know, um, hands-on, one-on-one training support. Um, but that's, everybody there is a little bit different. Uh, we've seen both. We've seen people who say, oh, there's so much information there. I need a lot of guidance. Please break it down day by day what I should be doing. And some people, are, okay, that's in general, I know what to do. Let me put it together myself. And then they would still come back to John, you know, for, for, for regular testing. Um, to see what they did helped, but that's a little bit the own taste of an athlete, right? If they want to have um, work, work with work on training um, with a coach directly or or uh, more, more more by themselves. Um, but yeah, for that, as I said, you don't need a lab, so you don't need to be next door to John in order to do the testing with him. All right. Cool. Well, that's interesting. I'm, uh, I wanted to check out, uh, I went on the site early on and looked at it, but I think it's interesting to be, I'll go on and look. Cause I think people are going to be curious where they can, where they can get the test done if they're not local here. Yeah. So, well, John, do you want to jump into test results or how do you want to do this? Sorry, I'm talking to the mute on, uh, yeah, Sebastian has your test results. So I think better this yet, is the worst part, right? We get to hear, we get to hear how terrible of an athlete I am. <laughs> Not necessarily. Well, I like to say, you know, I did I did uh, testing today myself. So I did the twenty second sprint and the the beautiful twelve minute full gas effort. But you know, I was telling myself, and you know, I talked to Tony about this too. I just got to change the verbiage in all my literature. is It's an evaluation, right? It's an analysis. It's not a pass fail test. And yes. my wife told me this. I think last year I was about to test. Usually, I wake up in the morning, go straight in the garage, hammer out my session. But there was one morning I was just in the in the kitchen, just standing there. She's like, "What's wrong? Did you have to work out?" I'm like, no, I gotta do this test. I'm trying to get myself amped up for it. She's like, "Stop calling it a test. You know, it's an evaluation. You're just seeing where you're at." I'm like, "You know, you're right. Okay, I still need to pump myself up this morning a little bit before I got into the garage." But um, yeah, so it's not a pass fail, Chris. It's just to see where that's you're an at excellent now point, and yeah. how you need to gear your training. Yeah, so, that's an excellent that's point. It's, it's it's great that you bring this up, John, because that's so true. Huh? That people like see this as a yeah failed or non-failed test, and they some people even like train for better test results or something, right? But that's not what it should be, right? So yeah, excellent point. Thanks for thanks for bringing this up. Great. Well, uh, do you want Sebastian just to kind of run through them? Yep. So I use Sebastian. <laughs> Should I just read the results or what? <laughs> yeah, look at the results. Um, Chris has not seen it. Um, yeah, I haven't really? seen anything so as far as no, yeah, I haven't got to see. I, know oh, I tested him before he went to Finland. I tested him before he went to Finland, so it just you know it was tested. Oh, okay. So I don't even know what I'm getting here. So yeah. Let him know okay. what we measured: VO2 max, VLA max, anaerobic threshold. You know, the yeah. whole meat and okay. potatoes. So it's all you. So I was look, waiting for uh, you to tell me to switch sports. Uh, you, should, no, you should take up no. golfing. 
No, 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 chess is really good for you, actually. No, look, um, so I have you here at uh, 183 centimeters body height and 88.6 kilograms of body mass, huh? um, yep. at a body fat of 14%. And that's okay. Um, also, in terms of body fat, I think it's more than okay. But as you already mentioned, for endurance sports where you have to carry your own body weight, e.g., running, uh, lower body weight, you know, could benefit you. And uh, John Certainly. has and John has the tool to, you know, alter your body weight, um, and then you know you could see how the numbers how the numbers would be changing. Not so much on the bike, right? I mean, we are talking here about a bike test, but uh, especially on the run, obviously, it would do its tricks, right? Um, yeah. So that's something um, definitely um, you. And could that's be really working. where I'm focused a lot at right now. Like I said, you know, I came off a of surgery, and um, I right. definitely would like to drop about 15 pounds to get back down. Um, yeah. You know, one, 180 is kind of where when I'm at 180, at least a year or so ago, I was right around eight nine percent body fat, and then uh, right. You know, over the last yeah. year of not not being able to train as much, I. And consumed more. <laughs> so that's interesting. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, um, and again, we could do the mass here and, 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 um, I, I mean, I can, I can do if you want and project that, um, how much, how much that, how much that would, would buy you potentially. Yeah. Um, and then to go into the main performance stuff. So we call it physiologic performance benchmarks, your, your key performance indicators, um, we have a VO2 max here of uh, four liters, um, which is uh, a little bit more than 42 milliliters per kilogram body weight. And to put this in perspective, um, you know, depending on age and so on, um, untrained is somewhere in the ballpark of like 30, um, right? Giving you a muscle mass that you carry around. And then, um, Elite is, you know, north of 70 and then um, like top of the elite is north of 80. And um, age group, uh, age group athletes often sit around somewhere like in the 60s. So, um, right. you're, so I have a long way to go. That's some way to go. But uh, let me let me put this in perspective also. Um, it's divided by the body mass, right? So it's four liters divided by the body mass. So obviously, if you if you drop... Um, if you drop body weight, right, the number the number would go up um, significantly, right? So we are talking about um, like we're easily talking about ten percent here or something, right? Um, which you need to um, which you need to take into account. I can just uh, which body weight would, would want me to run it at eighty two kilograms? Yeah, so one eighty is where I seem to get to. Has been the you know my ability to drop muscle. You know, I I have tried and tried to to reduce but 180 seems to be kind of the number i end up getting down to okay so let me let me run this real quick here um while we are talking right because again it's per kilogram body weight so of course reducing fat fat uh, body fat is 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 one way to put it up right um but um, muscle mass in general, especially in the upper body, if you don't need it for the swim, would be would be another way to do things, right? Um, okay, and then um, I can just uh, show you as a comparison um, what this would mean. So your VO2 max would then 
if you drop that, so if you same, if you if you if you if you maintain the same uh, max uh, uh, total oxygen uptake of four liters, right, and you would drop mm -hmm. the body weight to uh, approximately eighty-two kilogram, that would give you a uh, VO2 max of almost fifty. So you would immediately jump up like ten percent or close to ten percent, right? Um, and to to put this in perspective, when we look into when we look into the fat combustion substrate utilization, I will tell you how, how much how much that would change, right? Um, so let's keep it in, in the just keep it in the back of our minds here for now. Yeah, that's um, interesting because what uh, it will be interesting, John, is we'll go back and uh, hear when I'm down in two months, fifteen pounds, <laughs> maybe three months. <laughs> we'll retest, and it'll be really interesting to be able to compare that data to the kind of the projections. Right. Okay, and VLA max is 0.58, so let's say 0.6 roughly, okay, to simplify things. Okay, where does that sit? Um, endurance professionals, Ironman, Tour de France, like these long endurance events, uh, sit normally in a range of approximately 0.3-ish, maybe a little bit higher, 0.3 something, somewhere in this ballpark. And then you get sprinting athletes like you know tour de france sprinters uh around 0 0.8 0 0.9 and real sprinters like 100 meter track and field uh a little bit higher um so 0 0.6 is really somewhere in the mid-range here and for what you're doing um it would be clearly be too high right like uh you could gain uh you could gain a, a from from dropping it okay um so the mechanics here is that is kind of unclear. Your VLMX is the marker for it's like the, the anaerobic or glycolytic anaerobic brother of your VO2 max. So it's a measure on how much energy you can produce in your anaerobic glycolytic system. And why it's so important for you is because as a triad, you can say, okay, I don't care, right? Anaerobic, I don't do anything anaerobic. I'm not a sprinter. I do triathlon. Why should I care? Um, you know, it's 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 a marker for you know, how your muscles work and how your muscles are made up. And you use these muscles in, in like, you know, half-distance Ironman or uh, triathlon events. And the problem with the VLMX for you, a problem, but why it's important for you is because the only source, the only fuel your anaerobic metabolism can use is glucose or glycogen, is carbohydrates. So when you have, so to speak, a bigger anaerobic engine, right, you you don't dump this in transition one, right? You have it with you, right? That's you, how your muscle is made up. So if your maximum is higher, then also in sub-maximum conditions, like in triathlon, for example, you will always use this engine a little bit and it will always contribute to higher glycogen or glucose combustion, right? It will also lower your FDP, which in your case doesn't really matter so much because you don't raise it if FDP or threshold or whatever you want to call it, but the, the carbohydrate combustion that comes with a slightly higher VLMX, it's going to get an issue for you. The beauty for it right now is that the, and that's sometimes a little bit difficult to grasp for people, but the influence of the VLMX on your endurance performance increases with your VO2 max. So the higher the VO2 max, the more important the VLMX becomes. So let's say if you just came back from surgery and VO2 max was maybe 30, don't care at all. Okay, now with 45 VO2 max, you start to want to look at that, right? I wouldn't say it's highest priority because we identified that losing weight and bringing up VO2 max, both, like 
total VO2 max from a training point of view, but also by dropping weight is 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 um, is one of the most important stuff here. Uh, but then VLMX comes into play pretty quickly. So I would, if you would ask me about training, I would currently not try to actively change it, but I would monitor it and try to ensure that it's not going further up. Because so what I'm trying to say is, let's say two months down the road, you are there with you know dropping six seven kilograms of body weight and a VO2 max of 50. And if while doing this, your VLA max got up to 0.75, you have a problem, right? So, And just for clarity, what, what is that? Do that? That number is is how many carbs or it, uh, it's, 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 it's It's millimoles of lactate produced per second, okay. right? So think about it this way. You peaked at 12.6 millimole lactate after three minutes in your three-minute effort, right? Your VLA max mm-hmm. of 0.58 means... 0.58 millimoles lactates per second, which means after 10 seconds, you are 5.8. After 20 seconds, you're 11.6, and so on and so forth, if you stay at that maximum, right? Obviously, your three-minute was not maximum. Otherwise, you would have peaked at, I don't know, 1,200 or something. Um, so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's using lactate as an indicator for how much, you know, anaerobic or more precisely glycolytic energy production because every time you produce energy quote unquote, like slash uh, in brackets FTP uh, ATP sorry for that ATP in your glycology energy met- metabolism you produce lactate with it so there's a proportion this is why you can use lactate as a marker for glycolytic energy production okay and I mean to give to put this in perspective why that is so important let's let's look at the magnitude right so we said your current view to max is 45 let's say if you drop a little bit of kilograms it's maybe 50 right elite is 75 80 so your view to max you know so to speak is whatever 40% less than of an elite athlete but I said, you have a VLMX of 0.6 and the lead is 0.3. This is 100% difference. So that's why yeah. I said you cannot, like when your endurance performance is getting higher and your VO2max is getting higher, you cannot neglect or ignore this VLMX because then it becomes more and more important. Right? So you are maxing out the ability of your VO2max, right? You get closer to elite, you maybe already there training, I don't know how many hours per week. So at some point, your VO2 max is not going to change that much anymore, right? You might hit a plateau in your training progression. Um, VO2 max is not changing a lot anymore. And then and then you have to start looking at your VLA max at some point. And when that happens, and it's still a notch below 0.6, then it's a good starting point or a case starting point. But what you don't want to do, for example, just give me one example of what might not be the most smartest training. You go out there and do three times a week uh, very intense interval steering sessions. Pretty potent to bring up your VO to max, but if you're unlucky, then you do it the wrong way in terms of recovery and so on and so forth. And it also brings up your VLA max. And then what happens is you increase your ability for aerobic energy production, which means you increase your ability to, for example, use fat instead of carbohydrates, right? Because you can fat, you can only burn fat in zero metabolism. But if you bring up your VLMX simultaneously with this kind of interval training, then this effect is getting eaten up by using more carbohydrates in that system. 
and also the same with the FTP, right? For example, if you're going to go back to FTP, you have your your maximum lactate steady state. So what FTP is trying to be a proxy for is 223 watts, right? When you when you keep, we talked about that. When you keep the same total oxygen uptake, but you just decrease your body weight, right? The MLS, so the maximum lactate steady state would go up to almost 240 watts. So almost like 20 watts increment, right? But if you would simultaneously increase your VLA max by this interval training, then it would stay the same, right? And this is going back to what John saying about, um, you know, FTP, what was your words, John, being pretty rough or not very precise, right? So what the bad thing is, let's think about it this way, you could, if you just had FTP and not all these insights here, you maybe do a hard interval training and you see after the interval training, your FTP is not going, is not improved at all. And you think, oh, heck, like I didn't improve. But under the hood, you maybe increase your anaerobic system and your aerobic system. But in terms of FTP, the effects are eating up each other. So you are now mm. stronger aerobically and stronger anaerobically. So for your FTP, which is just one number, right? Nothing changed, but both systems adapted, right? Both systems changed. And mm -hmm. this is why it's it's so important to look at both again. So in terms of training, VLMX, monitor it right now. Try to not increase it. But I would not prescribe, in your case, a training primarily aiming at VLMX, but primarily aiming at VO2max and, and, uh, and body weight. Huh? And, and that equates to um, less hard effort, more lower well, not necessarily. It depends on how you do okay. the hard efforts and how hard you do them, right? Okay. Um, yeah. So um, it will come down to, like, think about it this way. The idea of training is every system that you use is adapting, right? This is the idea, right? You'd go, like you said, mm -hmm. you go to the gym, right? If you do arm curls, you don't expect your quadriceps to grow, right? Because that's not mm -hmm. what you used. But it might sound <laughs> stupid, but that's exactly what it is, right? So think about it this way. If you do an interval training where you produce a lot of lactate, a very high anaerobic interval training, then you can you expect your VLMX to decrease? Maybe not. Huh? Right, um, right. So it depends on how you do it. So, and it comes down to uh, also how you use the, uh, the resting intervals in between, right? Because the resting interval, and that's like, Unfortunately, we don't have the time for that to do it right now. It's a, it's a whole other topic. But your resting interval, how you recover between the intervals, is deciding a lot what happens during the interval, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of in terms of which energetic system you use. Um, and so, if you depending on how you use your recovery, um, and of of course the on phase, so the so the intensity itself. So how intense is the interval? How long is it? Uh, and how you recover in between will decide how much you use your VLA max. And we have that. Um, so we have something what we call the training zone builder, um, where you can design training zones specifically for that, right? So you can design a training zone where you say, uh, I want to go whatever to, let's say, 90% of my VO2 max, but my VLA max should not be higher than, you know, using it more than 8% or 10%. You can monitor that and therefore ensure that you trigger your VO2max system, your aerobic system, but not triggering your anaerobic system too much. That's really interesting. Uh, well, then I'm definitely going to have to work with John to uh, figure out how we can apply some of that. 
Yes. And by the way, I, I promised you that uh, in the meantime, I've I've looked at some data here, right? So currently your maximum fat combustion, because we want to talk about the improvements by just keeping your VO2 max and dropping weight, huh? um, your maximum fat combustion sits at approximately 140 watts and is equivalent to 280 kilocalories per hour coming from fats. And if you just do what we just said, dropping, like keeping your aerobic engine, but dropping your... Um, you know, um, dropping your body weight, the power at fat max would increase by approximately 20 watts and the calories would jump to 315. So um, you would be able, and that's the beauty of it, and that's another reason why it makes sense to, to first work on that, is what it will do for you, it will allow you to increase the training intensities, right? Because, for example, now fat max increased 20, 20 watts. Right. Um, so working on the aerobic system first is going to be really the foundation for, um, you know, more successful training going forward. Right. Um, or to put that in perspective, what power output did you use now in the race on the bike? Do you know? I didn't get to look at my total. I think we were shooting for like 210 to 215, probably average. Okay. So um, to put this in perspective, how the magnitude, um, with that, with that uh, effect of um, just keeping your VO2 max and uh, at total and decreasing the body weight, um, you would have dropped your carbohydrate combustion by almost 20 grams per hour. All right, and okay. or in other words, for the same carbohydrate combustions, you could have gone 10 watts more. In oh, the race. that's interesting. Right. Yeah, and my average power was two hundred five. Two hundred five. Okay. Then yep, that was. Uh, I just looked at it. My average power was two hundred five. Okay. Then it's similar anyway. Then your power would increase to, uh, yeah, two two fourteen and a half. So it, ten watts is same same thing. Yeah. Which is five. Which is five percent, approximately. Right. Um. 10, 10 watts is approximately 5% here. Um, and yeah, that's kind of bring it full circle, right? This is what we started with this example, right? If I can tell you how much more performance you would gain, you can now decide, do you want to go down this road and dropping weight, yes or no? Right. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <After> definitely. <laughs> I definitely. <laughs> Well, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sebastian. Yeah, you're very welcome. Yeah, I know we need to let you get going because you have some other calls to take. So uh, I don't want to hold that. you up too yeah. long. No, not a problem. I, I think it's really interesting. It'll be really interesting to test again uh, here coming up in the future and be able to compare that data. So uh, yeah, appreciate the do time a running and the education. And, yeah. 100%. I definitely want to do a running test as well to have that data. Yeah. Cool. Excellent. Yeah. Thanks for having me, everyone. It was cool. Yeah. Really enjoyed it. Time was flying. Yeah, it was. Hope you, hope you enjoyed it as well. Yeah. Thanks, John. I appreciate uh, for you putting us in contact with, with Sebastian and helping us do the testing. Definitely. Thanks, Sebastian. It was great chatting with you today. Thank you. Have a good one, everyone. All right. Cheers. You have a good one. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. Yep. Thank you. 